Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and we're on your smart speaker as well. Coming up, the UK has seen the worst levels of anti-Semitism for 40 years following the Hamas terror attacks in what's been called an explosion in hatred. Shoplifters could be given a get-out-of-jail-free card under plans to reduce overcrowding in UK prisons. And a major UK holiday destination is set to tax tourists as fed-up locals slam visitors for trashing their beauty spot. Let's start with this troubling report published by a UK Jewish charity detailing an unprecedented spike in anti-Semitic hate crime across the UK in 2023. Tensions in the Middle East are said to be fueling the increase, with 66% of these attacks occurring on or after the 7th of October. And in what's been described as an explosion in hate, violent assaults on members of the community are up by 96% from the previous year, while pro-Palestine protests rage on across the country. Now, when exactly did Britain become such a hateful nation? I'd like to put this question forward to the CEO of the Anti-Semitism Policy Trust who actually did this report. Danny Stone joins me now down the line. Danny, um, were these findings surprising to you? Good evening and thank you for having me on. I just need to say this was the report by the Community Security Trust. Right. We work very closely with them. Sadly, uh, not is the answer. This is not surprising. Over 4,000 incidents against a community that's only 270,000 in the UK. And each incident has a serious and, uh, an impact on the individual and then on their family and their friends and so on and so forth. Um, we've known there's been a palpable feeling in the Jewish community since the 7th of October that things have been worsening, and we've seen it across different sectors, the NHS, in theatre, um, and on campus. So no, it's not a surprise, it's extremely depressing, and there's urgent work needs to be done to tackle it. And I think some of the most appalling sort of, I suppose, aspects of this report are that it got worse on October the 7th. So effectively, on the very day that most people were so horrified at what had happened and what they were seeing on the news, um, that some people in this country decided that would be a good time to start becoming anti-Semitic and start actually attacking Jewish people. Well, that, that's exactly right. There's no... Uh, you look at the data and it's very clear. Just after lunchtime on the 7th of October, uh, a car drove past the synagogue with a, a Palestinian flag um, screaming, screaming at people at the synagogue. Um, the 11th of October, four days before Israel had begun its response to the terrorist attack, uh, was the day in which the largest number of incidents were recorded. And as you said, two thirds of the incidents came post 7th of October. Um, so there is no question here and we've known a vision between uh, increase in violence in the Middle East and attacks on Britain's Jews. That's unacceptable. There's no excuse for it. And uh, I think workplaces across the country, there need to be the right policies in place and there needs to be addressed for uh, anti-Semitism, which is expressed in the frame of the Middle East conflict. Yeah, exactly right. And when you think back to the times before the actual uh, October 7th uh, massacre, I seem to remember there was at least one or possibly two occasions where um, Islamic extremists, for want of a better word, um, were driving through parts of North London, known to be uh, particularly populated by Jewish communities, um, shouting all manner of horrible things. They were going to rape the Jewish women. Uh, they were driving sort of pickup trucks that looked, for all intents and purposes, like something you'd see in the middle of an ISIS war zone. Yeah, 
You're right, there was a convoy of cars that drew through uh, a known Jewish area. And let me be clear, you know, no one's suggesting that people shouldn't be able to maintain Palestinian rights. Um, but when you drive through a Jewish area screaming obscenities, and these were misogynist, anti-Semitic, as you say, obscenities, yeah. and Jewish women particularly, uh, there needs to be consequences. Now, part of the problem there was that that case did go to trial and there was difficulty in identifying who was holding the, the speaker and who was in the car. And I think there needs to be some work done on uh, on strict life in relation to those, those criminal cases. Uh, but it's unacceptable for people to go and attack Jews. They want to protest, protest Israel. Okay, but... When they attack Jews, that is anti-Semitism. It's holding people collectively responsible. It's unacceptable. Yeah, absolutely right. Danny, the line is cracking up a little bit, so I'm going to let you go. But thank you very much indeed for kicking us off tonight. Danny Stone, our director of the Anti-Semitism anti Policy Trust. Let me play you an interview that we had from last night, of course, and that was with uh, Lehav Atam. And he was the man at the centre of a horrible story from last weekend at the Soho Theatre, where he and a friend of his decided to visit a comedy show. Well, that's what they thought they were visiting. It turned out they were visiting a man by the name of Paul Curry, who's not so much a comedian uh, as somebody who practices anti-Semitism as a stage act. Let's have a look. When you're on the stage and you're holding a mic and you're inciting an entire crowd against two members of the audience, that could get out of, out of hand Well, it could have very got quickly. very, very out of hand very quickly. I mean, I, imagine if somebody had grabbed you or there had been some physical confrontation. I think it is very likely that if we had refused to leave the yeah. space, if we had lingered for over a minute, right. I think it would have come to physical violence. And that is in a London theatre in 2024. Hard to believe, isn't it? Let's get a reaction to all of what we've been talking about from the panel. They're here with me, editor of Spikes Online, Tom Slater, writer and commentator Candice Holdsworth, and of course, barrister and broadcaster, Mr Andrew Ebor. Of course. Um, Tom, let me start with you. Um, we ran that interview last night, had a big reaction to it, of course, as well, because it's so incongruous, really, that, you know, you go out for a, a night's entertainment to sit in a crowd of people who are, generally speaking, like-minded fans of comedy, and you end up being hounded out of the theatre... Um, and it sounds from this report that we've just heard there from Danny Stone that this is just a tip of the iceberg of 4,000 and more anti-Semitic attacks on people. It's absolutely appalling. I think there is a sense that it's almost open season for this yeah. kind of hatred at the moment. And from that Community Security Trust report, there's one really important fact which Danny was talking about, yeah. which is the fact that not only did they begin on October the 7th, but they peaked before mm. Israel's defensive war really right. began. So we should underline what Which means. is a very important point, actually. It's celebrating yeah. the pogrom. Yeah. There's no bloodshed in Gaza had taken place at this point, mm. not on the kind of scale that no. we've seen since. Not, not, the war had not even begun. It's bad enough if you had people in this country holding Jews collectively responsible right. for a war that far away. It's bad enough if people are acting as if mm. this war wasn't started by Hamas. And it's bad enough when people exaggerate what Israel is doing to make them look genocidal mm. and all the rest of it. Because yeah, remember, yeah. going back to brass tacks, these anti-Semitic incidents began... Straight after mm. the pogrom, they were celebrating it. Yeah. If you remember what's been driving, that's what's been driving this yes. from the beginning. I think. Well, I remember from the, the horrible stuff that we saw on October the 7th, just on the news, where, you know, people were driving bodies of women through the streets of the Gaza Strip, where people were spitting on them. We didn't know if they were dead or alive. They were hitting them. Um, they were beating them. Um, they were degrading them. Yeah. And you just thought to yourself, how on earth has this come full circle round to mm -hmm. this is all the fault 
of the Jews. It, well, it, it completely <clears throat> collapses that false distinction that people make between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. Yeah. I mean, it's so easily the one bleeds into the other. Mm. I mean, were those people in southern Israel asked if they were Zionists before they were murdered? Mm -hmm. Were the babies asked if they support Zionism right. before they were taken off to Gaza and yeah. separated from their parents? No, they weren't. I think it's a completely spurious distinction. And as you saw in, as we saw in that theatre, so he, all that guy had to do was just disagree. He had to yeah. he just disagreed. He disagreed with what that guy said about the Palestinian flag, right. and he was set upon viciously. Right. And we know what's behind it when we see that level of viciousness. Mm. And this is what experts in anti-Semitism say, because obviously, you know, many people know that that there's certain things they cannot say that's not acceptable. You know, mm. there are certain anti-Semitic statements that you maybe could have said during the 1930s that you yeah. can't say now. But they find other ways of saying yeah. it. And I think the vitriol really rises up when they're confronted about it. But it has also become, Andrew, a kind of mark of, you know, wokeness, isn't it, now? Oh. Uh, in order to be, you know, in order to be anti-Semitic, you kind of have to want social justice and you have yeah. to see Israel it, it, as the colonial um, master yeah. and it's all their fault, no matter what the Palestinians do, uh, they're entitled to do it because they've been treated so badly for so long. And it's simply the wrong definition of history you know even if you're uh, if you want to be completely even-handed and you can yes admit that israel may have done some things that they should not have done right. over various different uh, pieces of history but nevertheless you know israel is still a democracy it's still the only part of uh, any the only part of that world in that that is the only country where you can actually vote for somebody to be the leader of it you can't vote anywhere else you know and i find it astonishing that it seems to be getting worse rather than better. You put it so well, Mike. It's absolutely appealing. And I live in the very heart of Regent's Park. Yeah. We have all the different communities. We have the large synagogues. We have the biggest mosque in London yeah. and so on and so forth. And it used to be a very happy community. Right. And what's happened is... I remember when the mosque opened in Regent's Park. There you I go. I mean, you know, it was, it was a, a sort of a, a great addition to a very interesting area. Yeah, and a phenomenal area. And it used to be a wonderful community. Yeah. But what's happened now is the poison that we had online is now mm. spilled out onto the streets. Right. And I know the Soho Theatre people very well. Mm. Um, and they have glorious events there, all sorts of events every night. Uh, very, very successful. Well, thankfully, they're appalling. not having Paul Kerry back. No, well, exactly. And they, they came out and, and uh, absolutely abhorrent what happened in those situations. So I know a lot of the people involved. But what we have to do is absolutely, which you always do on this show, is call it out. Mm. Because what happens is often a small group of people who spark this hatred. And that's the problem. Yeah. I think if you look at the other rest of the community working on that sort of principle, then we should get back to that sort of normality. But you're right, I think the undercurrent is deplorable right. and we need to call it out. And I mean, we saw earlier this week um, at Tobias Elwood's house being mm. sort of, uh, demonstrated outside yes. uh, by a bunch of people. It turns out led by the former Labour candidate uh, in the last election. Yeah. So you can't say, oh, it's just, you know, Palestinian activists. I mm. mean, she may or may not be a Palestinian activist, but she was also selected to be the Labour candidate. We've now got Wes Streeting, yes. um, yeah. Labour frontbencher, senior member of the party. Uh, he had a vote for genocide poster put up in his constituency. It's, it's outrageous. And I think what we're seeing spilling out into the open is something that people who've been paying attention to this issue have seen growing for a long time, which is that you have this new anti-Semitism, which has all these horrendous faces to yeah. it. So you've got this sort of left anti-Semitism, right. which we've come to understand 
in, as, as has been going on in the Labour Party. You've got this kind of Islamist anti-Semitism, mm. which has been brewing for some time. There's the old kind of fashion right-wing anti-Semitism, yeah. although that's, to be honest, a kind of... That's a, kind of blended into the background, hasn't it? ...form yeah. in all of this. Although it is interesting seeing Nick Griffin popping up and saying pro-Palestine things. Tells you something. But we need to be a but lot tougher. Is... We need to enforce the law. The law is yeah. there to protect people. Right. It's not being enforced in the right sort of way. And as a result, what happens is it continues to spread. If, people, if you make sure that you stop the people early on, hit them with what the law says to prevent these sort of things, then you'll prevent the further... But I don't know about that, Andrew, because in a way, this is something you can't make laws about. You know, yes, you can stop people from being um, hateful, you can stop people from breaking laws which already exist. Yes. You can't stop people from thinking things. I think that's... Also, I think we shouldn't rely on the law to tackle what's sometimes a kind of broader, like, social, cultural problem. And I think, actually, people across British society need to take some responsibility for standing with British Jews and for standing up to this anti-Semitism. Because I think it's our own ignorance and complacency which has yeah. allowed this to grow. This has been going on for a very long time. Even before October the 7th, Jews yeah. were about 0.5% of the population. They represented a quarter of the religiously motivated hate crime. Mm. That was a year before the attack. Yes. This has been going on for a very long time, but we've turned a blind eye. And I think it's, it's such a good point. You know, we have to stand up to these intimidation mobs. Yeah. You know, people who threaten teachers, people mm. who turn up at schools, people who threaten authors. Yeah. We should say, absolutely no way. We will not tolerate yeah. this in a free and society. that's my point, because you need to find a solution. And, and education is helpful, so jaw, jaw, not war, war. But we do have laws already in place. Mm to make sure that we enforce that sort of side. And I think people are reluctant to go for the full strength of the law right. to stop some of it. Question, is there a law against turning up outside someone's house? Because I'm actually not clear on well, that. Well, if, if there's intimidation and so on and so forth, then... They, and they well, I think in the case of Tobias Elwood, there yeah. should be. It, and, exactly. and I'm sure that the police could have used a law, but instead of which, they were like, well, we have to balance the kind of, you know, uh, the freedom of speech, and we have to worry about whether people's right to demonstrate is being impacted upon. I mean... In the old days of, of newspapers sort of, um, you know, doorstepping madness, when you would, yeah. and it used to happen to Dominic Cummings, you know, he would come out of his house every single day and there'd be hordes and hordes of journalists there, right. which is not quite the same as having hordes and hordes of demonstrators. Yeah. You know, and you can't really stop journalists. But you should be able to, as a private citizen, never mind as Tobias Elwood, yeah. to say to the police, get this rabble away from you. Yeah. But you, we're so reliant on common decency yeah. that people don't cross those boundaries, yes. that people respect yeah. that someone's home with their children yeah. and that you don't go there. But I think that there is this no, you're, new you're right. but if, discourse, which if you're is so fearing, vitriolic. If you're fearing for your life, then that's absolutely wrong and we need to be a lot tougher on that. I don't I, think it should be as much as that. I don't think fearing for your life should be the line. I think, you know, fearing for your family's safety, safety. Well, safety should yeah, be fair enough. Safe. I mean, you know, he's got young children inside a house. I mean, what is he supposed to tell them? Yeah. You know, yeah. Daddy, why are there loads of people outside screaming that you're a genocidal maniac? Sure. So, I mean, so, it's outrageous. So, so what you need is clarity. The police need to be told, this is what you need to do, this, to, to enforce the law on that sort of basis. Because if you don't do that, then there's that sort of... They're very worried about acting. I, I think don't think people have the right to demonstrate outside private homes. I, I agree with you. I just you. don't think they do. No. I think the difficulty is that that kind of norm that we have, which is there's certain places which are just no-go areas for protest. There's certain things that you don't do. There's certain things that won't endear people to your cause. Mm. Not just on the Palestine issue, but on so many other yeah. issues. That's completely gone now. People think that it's absolutely fair game. I, I don't think the law is the answer to that, but what I th- not least because of the fact, and as I know we're going to come on to, the law is being very selectively yes. applied where these people right. are concerned. Yeah. So I think we need a, a, a broader push a pushback yeah. against these people. But also there's something that's gone slightly wrong as well with the general kind of tenant of society's wars. You know, I was yeah. walking mm-hmm. out just a little bit earlier on before the show and there's some guy at the bottom of the escalator down by the bottom of the shard there with a little table, two of them, very middle class, um, advertising for communism, going... Um, have you had enough of capitalism? I said, not really. Um, he went, would you like communism? I went, no. And I'm going, what the, what the hell are we doing here? What, you know, it's, you know, six, seven o'clock at night. You're standing in a relatively empty place 
trying to recruit people to the communist cause. Why? With, with their democratic right to do so much. I mean, if anything, yeah, it tells right. you about I don't, how I, mean, I, don't care that he's, I don't care that he's doing it, but I haven't seen anybody operating on behalf of the Communist Party in a street in London for quite a long time. No, it, it, it tells exactly. you something about how marginal the, the old left are, really, though, to be yeah. honest. If it's two people in a trestle table, yeah. you know, in the train station this time of night, it's a bit of a reminder of what yeah. kind of anarchy almost hobby that yes. uh, part of politics has yeah. become. But a lot of people are lost, and that's the problem. So you can appeal to people. They're looking for a saviour, so they're looking for the right party that's going to lead them. You need a strong leader who's going to get them out of this mess and so on and so forth. But how much as well is down to the kind of um, the programming, if you like, yes. or the propaganda that's been pushed through universities, because that's kind of where it started. We now know that it's running through the NHS. Doctors, pro-Palestinian doctors are here. We've also got quite a lot of people who have come from Palestine right. to be here. Um, and I've made this point before, that there's a lot more people who have skin in the game, if you like, about Palestine than there used to be. Because, you know, I will say back in the 70s, Andrew, you will remember this. Yes. I mean, there were plenty of Middle East conflicts going on. Well, Yasser Arafat was knocking off yep. planes five to the dozen. You know, they were blowing up Jordan. They were blowing up Lebanon. There was the Golan Heights war. There wasn't anybody demonstrating in London saying, this must stop. Israel is the devil. Uh, no, exactly. And we used to, as I say before, right? it used to be a very tolerant community. But whatever's happened, that underlying current... Uh, has basically spilled over. And I think that's the problem. It's incendiary mm. and the language that's being spoken. But we do need to cut that out very early on. But we saw it with the gender-critical feminists. I feel like it started with them. I mean, the way that the, the treatment that they were subjected to as if that they were somehow uniquely evil. Yeah. I mean, J.K. Rowling, I mean, one of the yeah. most thoughtful people imaginable, was suddenly recast as an ogre. Yeah, yeah. Because she, she expressed an mm. opinion... And as soon as she did that, she became beyond the pale. Right. And you're seeing it in so many different areas now. There's not that respect for political difference anymore. No. It's, it's, it's not that they, you're, you're, they are your political opponent. They're your enemy. Yeah, yeah. I'll be and vanquished. That, because and, and because right. they're right and you're wrong, and that's yeah. the problem. We've got to stop there for a moment. We'll have you guys back in very shortly, though. Rolling into the night, uh, we are doing right here. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Do not go anywhere, because after the break, we'll be delving into the swamp of lawless Britain. Stay exactly where you are. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Shoplifters should be spared jail in order to tackle the growing court backlog. That's the unbelievable suggestion made by the former Director of Public Prosecutions for England and Wales, Sir Max Hill. Have a look at this. We should be looking again at whether it's necessary to take every case into court. I don't mean offences of violence. Of course I don't. certainly don't mean offences of sexual crimes, but some acquisitive... Like kind of shoplifting, for example. Shoplifting, for example. With me in the studio is former police superintendent Leroy Logan. Um, I thought that sort of long past days of the liberal elite were gone, but clearly not. You know, let's stop locking up criminals because that's not the answer. And I know that it's not a black and white issue and you can um, probably agree with some points that he's making. I just worry that we're in this kind of what I call lawless Britain stage of society at the moment. You know, we've just seen another teenager killed in Bristol. Um, people tell me that now Bristol has been really taken over by the County Lines gangs and that will bound, is bound to seep into other towns like Exeter down there and maybe Plymouth, Portsmouth, Southampton, you know, all the way up through the rest of the country. Um, I think it's well past the point at which we say, let's just not lock people up. Yeah, I don't think it's going to reassure people. And the fact that they do um, look at things especially from the Crown Prosecution Service, yeah. is it likely to have a conviction and take, you know, take each case as it comes on its merits? Yeah. But um, to be having these sort of general 
comments. Um, again, it's just going to worry people. And as you say, we have got a, a different form of, uh, you know, criminality because it's a lot more organised. You know, shoplifters, I, I can see four or five years ago, used to be, well, some people are just on desperate times and they do these things. But now it's organised, social media is oh, a facilitator, well you know, and, and it's linked with um, cross-border criminals, you know. So it's not like, oh, they're doing a bit of shoplifting in London. It's connected mm -hmm. with Merseyside or um, Birmingham or yeah. whatever it may be, you know. Right. So it, it, it just oh, it's very much it's clearly being done on a much more industrial scale. Absolutely. And it's not somebody going, oh, I feel a bit hungry, I'm going to nick his ham sandwich. You know, they're mm -hmm. going in and literally emptying, you know, entire cabinets full of vapes, cigarettes... Yeah. Alcohol. I mean, they're going for things which they're obviously reselling. Yeah. Um, and I think for an awful lot of shopkeepers, it must be a nightmare at the moment because many of them, and we're going to be speaking hopefully to Carl Wolf, uh, who's an independent lawyer that works with some of these private security companies, a lot of shops now hiring private security because that's the only thing they can do to protect themselves. Yeah, and, and then obviously the security has to be careful how they handle people because uh, we know that certain perpetrators know how to use the system and if they're being... Um, manhandled, which the courts might um, assess as being disproportionate or yes. inappropriate in, in some way, um, then, you know, things can turn around. But I, I think we are, you know, certain areas that you, you, you can guarantee that certain people coming together and creating certain types of crime, which you wouldn't see generally, and hopefully it's not going to spread, but as you've already highlighted, different towns and cities outside the large urban cities are starting to find that these mm. things are more commonplace. Yeah, and it might well be. I think we've got Carl Wolf now. He's an independent lawyer. He works with TMI Private Security. Carl, um, welcome back uh, to the show. Welcome to the show, I should say, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. I mean, I think Leroy's right. A lot of this um, shoplifting, for example, is by and large um, quite well organised, but a lot of it might as well be, I suppose, opportunism by, you know, youngish kids who get together one day and go, let's go and raid that shop over there and see what we can get out of them. I mean, we are seeing um, across the board um, all types of shoplifters um, from organised adult gangs uh, who are going in with distraction techniques, distracting shop assistants whilst their accomplices clear racks and shelves, um, all the way down, as you said, to groups of kids um, on half term who go in um, and either steal one item or in some cases are stealing huge amounts of items. Um, and the problem is um, that uh, some of the shops uh, are simply not prepared to prosecute because they don't think that the courts um, will take it seriously. And so the sort of announcement that we've had today, whereas you know, low-level shoplifting shouldn't be prosecuted, yeah. those offenders shouldn't go to, to prison. That sends out completely the wrong message. Um, the company that I do a lot of work for, TMI, um, they're there because the shops are fed up with the police simply not turning up or can't turn up because they don't have the resources. Yeah. And then when um, people go to court, quite often the CPS say, well, we'll take a lower, we'll take a lower offence, um, and the courts are not being um, given the opportunity to to really deal with um, a problem that's at the, at the heart of our communities. 
the whole purpose of magistrates' courts um, is that it's supposed to be local justice by local people. Right. Um, and when you have somebody who says, let's across the board, you know, take a view that low-level shoplifting um, shouldn't be prosecuted or shouldn't go, people shouldn't go to prison, entirely the wrong message. Yeah, um, and I'm finding that when we get the cases into court, magistrates are horrified that the police don't turn up um, horrified, but also in some cases grateful that we're taking private prosecutions. I'm a specialist private prosecutor. Um, and um, when these cases come into court, we have people sent to prison. We have banning orders, um, preventing people from going to shops and locations. Um, it, it really is getting out of hand. And as with the best will in the world, if the police turn up, they're very helpful. Most of the time they don't turn up. Yeah. Stay where you are, Carl, if you will. Um, Leroy, do you recognise that sort of um, situation when it comes to the police? They haven't got enough resources to go to every um, burglary or every shoplifting event, obviously. Um, but if people are doing private prosecutions now, could that be a way forward, maybe? Yeah, and, and it's not just on, on, on um, shoplifting. They're doing all sorts of private prosecutions. Um, <laughs> I don't like to add that the, the whole post office scandal was on private prosecutions. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes it, it, it is a force for good, but you've got to be, uh, you've got to have the internal checks and balances to ensure mm. you don't go into a disproportionate type of action. But yeah, the, people are thinking, well, we have to go to the courts. Um, it might not go through the police or the Crown Prosecution Service. And, they, and they're hoping that the judges will, um, or magistrates, um, more than likely, will, will um, hear the cases. But the only thing is, there's a bottleneck. There is a bottleneck. I mean, especially if it's a major crime, it's going to Crown Court. You have got a serious hold-up. It's only really serious crimes are rushed through. You know, you might be worth, um, waiting two, three years. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is it's a terrible, terrible bottleneck in every single place that you look in the criminal justice system. Uh, Carl, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us. Carl Wolf, their independent lawyer uh, for the TMI private security company. Um, now, elsewhere in lawless Britain, the latest knife crime statistics for England and Wales were released today as well. And while the number of knife and offensive weapon cases dealt with actually fell by 2% in July to September last year compared to the year before, there was still an unbelievable 18,997 cases in that period of time. Clearly, there is still far more that needs to be done. Um, coming up now, let's talk to uh, our next guest, who is, of course, uh, Yvonne Lawson, uh, who is the mother of Godwin Lawson, uh, who was stabbed when he was only 17 years of age. Um, I really appreciate you coming on to the show, Yvonne. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I mean, you're working very hard to try and change the way things are. But I was saying to Leroy just before, uh, only this week, another teenager, 16-year-old this time in Bristol, stabbed to death. Um, tell us what happened to, to your son. So as a mum living in London, I would often hear about knife crime and it always sounded a distance. Never did I imagine that I would ever come near my doorstep. Godwin, at a very tender age of 17, he was offered a scholarship and was playing football at Oxford United Academy. He came to London to visit friends and family. And then a fight broke up between his friends and as Godwin stepped in to stop the fight, he unfortunately suffered one stab wound to his chest. And yet, unfortunately, he died from the, those injuries. Goodness. And um, it's very disheartening, disheartening at every level, 
for a mother to lose their child through knife crime. Oh, absolutely. It must have been absolutely awful for you. So, I mean, what do you see now when you're campaigning to try and make, you know, knife crime more, uh, if not recognisable, or to see the signs of what's likely to happen to something before it gets, gets to that stage? I mean, we're tirelessly campaigning and working at the ground level to, uh, for Godwin Lawson Foundation. We do lots of preventative work at schools and we, get, we work very closely with teachers who often target those young people that are likely to be perpetrators and victims of knife crime. And we work with them through very targeted interventions such as one-to-one mentoring and lots of workshops around conflict resolution and, and confidence building. Those figures that just came, I think the um, Home Office figures, although that they're saying that you know, the weapons have gone down in, in correlation to the, the homicide level. You know, last year, for example, we lost a staggering 103 young lives were murdered on the streets of London. And it just, it, it doesn't correlate. Someone's not doing their jobs properly. So either the, you know, the magistrates are not sentencing those young people or the police are not really... Um, catching those young people that are um, carrying those offensive weapons. Yeah, right. Um, Leroy, Logan's with us. Leroy, this is similar to some of the things you've said to me before about, you know, the, the way through this is not to just arrest people and lock them up, it's to do some more work in the community to try uh, and convince these young men that this is not the way to operate. But, I mean, if the figures aren't going down anytime soon, it's clearly not working, is it? Or is there not enough of it being done? No, I, I, I think... When you've got uh, Yvonne, and I just want to uh, recognise all the excellent work she's done, especially in the tragedy of losing her son. Uh, and I, I know that the charity sector, the voluntary sector, are key to a lot of this. Um, even myself, when I was in Hackney as a superintendent, I relied on the charity sector to be that interface. But you also need to have the culturally competent officers who are intelligence-led, highlighting the people that you really need to uh, keep on the run, keep them moving, and, and, and narrow all the impact they can have. Unfortunately, you don't have that proactive element in policing at a local level. Yeah. I mean, it's just firefighting policing. So they're not getting the information. And, and unfortunately, through austerity, you've lost a lot of your community cops that would be in the community working, building bridges, not barriers. And so you, we've now got a situation where less cops they're not reassuring people. They're not um, in those early intervention and prevention programs. A lot of the, the, the foundations like the um, Godwin Lawson Foundation is doing some great work, but they can't do it on their own. They need to have a coordinated public health approach with police and local authorities in a way that it's not just dealing with crime, it's dealing with the causes of crime. Because you're not going to arrest it away at this problem or stop and search away at the problem. Because if that was the case, we would have done it a long time ago. And we just need to have, going back to some real basic coppering, we need to get our basics right to, to build people's confidence. Because mm. the more they trust you, the more they tell you what's going on. Yeah. If they feel that you're not dealing with their matters, they're not going to tell you where the drugs are kept, where the knives or the other weapons are kept. And as a result of that, they're not willing to go to court, they see a crime, or even assist other one, assist other people. Because they're going to think, listen, no one's going to help me or my loved ones if I chip in and, you know, 
that their, their groups or gangs or whatever are going to have a go at me and my loved ones. Mm. No, it's a terrible, terrible problem. Leroy, we've got to end it there, I'm afraid. Leroy Logan, thank you very much indeed. And also, Yvonne Lawson, we'd love to get you back on another time because we need more time to talk about all of this. Uh, and it is the Godwin Lawson Foundation, uh, if people want to look for that uh, and see what they can do to help. Thank you both very much indeed. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Coming up after the break, British Gas have seen their profits leap while their prices remain sky high. Stay tuned to find out how much the fat cats are actually making. Moving on now, annual profits at British Gas have soared nearly tenfold in a single year, leaping to an unbelievable £751 million in 2023 alone, up from just £72 million the year before. The former Chief Executive of Energy UK, Angela Knight, joins me now. And Angela, welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. I've got to say, I mean, I'm not easily shocked, but even I'm shocked by the jump in profits here. Absolutely incredible. I mean, these are people who say... Um, they weren't able to sell gas at the same price as they used to sell it because, you know, wholesale uh, figures had jumped so much that they'd have to pay more for it. How have they made so much money? The, it's, it's a complicated story. It always is, I'm afraid. So sorry about that. The reality is that um, a number of the energy suppliers just went bust. They hadn't bought forward as it's called so they were in a situation in which they guaranteed to pay you, me, or whoever were their customers a certain price, but what well, they got to buy that, they, that gas or electricity on the wholesale market was much higher. They went bust. Somebody had to pick up the pieces. Otherwise, their customers would not have had their energy. One of the ones that picked up the pieces was uh, British Gas, and it picked them up, and it took the loss, and it was allowed them to lift the prices under the cap in order that that loss could be uh, recouped. So much of this is all about that sort of very strange period that we had. Looking ahead, they estimate that the sort of uh, profit that they'll be making, and it will still be a big number, sort of profit they're making will be about $240 million a year. But they've got 7.5 million customers. And 7.5 million customers... It, and you divide that into the profit they're making, is not a lot for a company who's as big as that in the, in the number of people they employ and the amount of investment they have to make. Well, I guess that depends on what they end up doing with the profit. But, I mean, if they were making a loss, when were they making a loss and where does that show up? Because um, if they were making somewhere between £75 and £94 million pounds in profits last year, that's still a profit. It is still a profit. And thank goodness they do make a profit, because if they didn't make a profit, we wouldn't have British gas. They would go bust like the others who haven't made a profit. There is a real question, and I think it's behind uh, the point that you're making, is how much profit should a company make? Now, if we look at, uh, the, uh, just stick with British gas for a moment, and let's assume that 750 million is there, Divide that by 7.5 million customers, it's about £2 a week profit per customer. But, of course, you've got the small customers, you've got the big customers. Averages don't tell the whole story. What does tell the whole story is if you actually look at your bill, where you find from your bill the smallest piece of your bill is actually profit. About a half is wholesale costs 
And then what takes up the other, whatever it is, nearly 48%. It's nearly the, the rest of it is, yeah, you've got VAT in there, but you've got those things that get added on the bill. The policy costs for what we now, what we refer to as green energy, not quite the right phrase, but it sits on the bill. And all those network costs of getting the gas and electricity to you are not owned by the energy supplier. They're independent. These are, well, they're different companies. That's an extraordinary expensive thing. So actually what I think we should be doing is not blaming a company for making a profit. Thank goodness they do make a profit. Then they employ the people, they do the investment, we get the services that they want. What we should be concerned about is first of all, should there be this standing charge, which is really significant, that sits on our gas and electricity pills regardless? And I would say no, and certainly not for the poorer in society. And second, should there be a social tariff? That is those, again, who are in receipt of benefits or definitely sit at the less affluent end of the spectra, shouldn't there not be a special tariff for them, which is less than for everybody else? No. And so rather not. than complain no, I don't about think they making a No, I don't think they should. I think should. No, but the point is, Angela, that people know that the standing charge continues to go up. Nobody knows where that money goes. I assume it goes to uh, British Gas or whoever's charging it. You know, at the end of the day, no. people at the end of the day, people need to see that the company that they're getting their energy from are not creaming off the top. And I mean, even Chris O'Shea, the chief exec, has admitted on television before that he can't justify his salary. So there's going to be loads of places where you yes. could you could make savings because the ordinary people in this yes. country, I think, deserve to be told the truth. And I agree with you. I know there's lots of things uh, that are built into the bill which the government insists on, and, the thing and is, that's wrong. But, and but the what we need, is, though, but what we need, but we're not going to be sitting here is, and being... Hang on. We're not going to be I'm told... I'm trying to tell you the truth. Yeah, well, I know you are, but I'm, I'm trying also to trying to tell you what I think as well. What pe British people yeah, need is reality. a company... Is a company... Hang on which actually serves them and doesn't rinse them every time the wholesale price goes up. And they don't, because the reality of all the major energy companies is they buy their gas and electricity for some considerable period of the head. What that does is give a stable price. The reason why the, 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 a number of the smaller companies, what was it, about 30 went bust, was because they didn't do that. They thought they could always buy on today or next week or next month's price, and it would be cheaper. <clears throat> Excuse me, coughing, I've got a cold. It would be cheaper, and it's not. And I think that there is something here which you rightly point out, and that is, is it all in the interest of the customer? And the answer is no, no. it's not necessarily all in the interest of the customer. I want British Gas to operate and run efficiently and well. I want them to serve me and all the other people that they're serving. I want them to do that at a cost-effective price. I want them to have a good, strong workforce, and I want them to invest. And there are a number of years where what they have to invest goes really down <clears throat> because of the way that this very cyclical industry, what happens to it, it's hit by what happens globally, and those days and weeks and months and years when that goes up. We don't care when their profit goes down. We don't care if they make a loss. When they make a profit, we want to say, oh, forget about the loss. We don't want you to make much of that profit either. I think that there is something about the energy industry which is very dear to our heart. We see it quite rightly as a service to which we are entitled and which we prefer to pay mm. a reasonable amount. I do think that in a number of uh, occasions, 
the customer has been fleeced. And right yeah. now, yeah. I think they are being fleeced. They are. But not by the company. By the well, way, I think, I think, I think the, the bottom line is, Andrew, <coughs> you've got to run. Sorry, I'm going to let you go and have some honey and lemon, which is what I recommend to get rid of that nasty cough. This. Don't worry, no, off you go. Go and enjoy the rest of the evening. Uh, I'm going to say thank you to you. Um, but the bottom line is, is that people know they're being ripped off and they're sick to death of it. And I'm going to try and find out a way through it. That's what I do. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Coming up next, find out why Seaside Town uh, wants to tax tourists and will pay tribute to broadcaster Steve Wright. Stay exactly where you are. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Now, only two days ago, legendary DJ Steve Wright suddenly passed away at the age of 69. But already the reasons for his passing uh, are beginning to come to light. The BBC's talent cull of older presenters was so vicious that even titans within the broadcaster were vulnerable. Um, joining me now from his holidays is The Sun's TV critic, Ali Ross. Ali, welcome back to The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Very kind of you to spare some time for us on your, on your holes. Um, Having shocking. a vacation, Mike, so it's, 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 Even it's easier. no problem. Even easier. I presume yeah. you're saving up for the Euros in the summer, eh? Yeah, and I've just got a ticket for the Germany game, so I'm uh, over the moon, Absolutely, Brian. absolutely. Shocking story this week um, to learn that Steve Wright uh, was discovered to have passed away on Monday uh, in his flat in, in London. Um, the Sun yesterday with the story saying that, you know... Uh, a friend, a friend of his, uh, saying he probably died of a broken heart because he was so upset about the way the BBC treated him. I mean, he was perhaps one of the biggest names that they decided that they didn't want really anymore in the main schedule. Mm. Yeah, um, Paul O'Grady and, and Ken Bruce, two of the others, absolute legends of broadcasting. Sadly, Ken's the only one that's still with us now. Right. Uh, but BBC Radio does this from time to time. It just self-sabotages and I think there's a couple of reasons behind it. The, f the first being, I, I don't think it's ever really got over the smashy and nicies thing, mm. which is famously the, the only piece of satire that's ever had an effect. Um, and it, it pointed out that all the original DJs from Radio 1 were still there almost 20 years later. And yeah. it's, it's very much had that on its mind ever since. But, of course, added to this is the fact that it's got a whole dose of wokery since then as well. So yeah. someone like Steve, who ticked no boxes but was loved by the listeners, yeah. um, probably didn't stand a chance, no matter how many millions of listeners he got. And it, it, it's a tragedy that he should go in these circumstances with praise ringing in his ears from the very same BBC bosses who got rid of him 18 months ago. Yeah, who were sort of wielding the knife, as it were. Hmm. Yeah. Exactly. They're shameless as well. And it's, I gather it's gone down very badly at BBC HQ with a woman who basically gave him the bump yes. was the first person paying tribute on email. This is Helen... Helen um, Helen what, Thomas. Helen Thomas, exactly right. Yeah. I mean, it's, his brother was also quoted today. He gave an interview um, to the Daily Mail uh, in which he said that, you know... Um, Steve was one of those guys who didn't look after himself terribly well. He wasn't very healthy. He'd struggled with his weight and all that sort of thing as well. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, he was a, a bit of a lonely character at the end, I guess. Um, I, I, I'd hate to think that. Um, he seems to have been genuinely liked, which you certainly couldn't say about 
all of that old Radio 1 crowd. No. Um, famously, they all, well, not all of them, but most of them absolutely loathed each other despite the sort of the smashy and nicey appearance in public. But Steve Wright, and I, I know this from speaking to people at the BBC, was genuinely thought of as a decent guy. Um, eccentric, like a lot of DJs. But um, his longevity speaks for itself. You don't last that long in the business um, if you've uh, turned people over and generally behave badly. So it, I think it was to his great credit. Mm. And um, you don't like to think of anyone dying lonely and heartbroken like that. Yeah. So I, I think we'd probably best wait and see to uh, as what comes out in the next few weeks uh, about this. No, sure. And meanwhile, the BBC have announced, I saw just the other week, that they're launching some new radio stations, bizarrely. They're launching some digital... Uh, <laughs> not only, enough, some digital-only version of Radio 3, um, which is going to be an add-on, they say, um, and a couple of others, which... And you just think, you know, given the amount of listeners that they're losing, is this really where they want to be spending their time? Yeah. Uh, well, when, when Steve Wright left that show... They immediately lost a million people. Yeah. And I, I've had conversations with, bizarre conversations with PRs from Radio 1 in the past where, they, where they've got rid of really high-profile DJs and said, well, the good news is they were a million listeners we didn't want. And you say, what, what, what planet is this yeah. company operating on that you don't want people to listen to mm. your product? You're just pursuing this cult of youth at all costs, mm. and in the case of Steve Wright, it cost them a million listeners. Now, they're lucky because they're propped up by this outdated license yeah. fee that they can get away with this um, for the moment. For You'd the like moment. to think eventually reality and time will catch up with them, yeah. and that they have to be responsible to the market in some respect Well, this because is this thing. is unsustainable. It is unsustainable, and I think the most recent radar showed um, that the gap now between commercial radio and the BBC is even bigger than it's ever been, because commercial radio yeah. continues to grow and BBC radio continues to shrink. Yeah, well, it, it doesn't surprise me one little bit. Um, uh, they, they seem to have forgotten all the basic lessons of, of, of giving the people what they want, and... There's so many of them, these high-profile figures have left acrimoniously. And every time one of them goes like this, then the BBC come out and tell, tell us how well-loved they were. Well, we knew that, yeah. but did you? Clearly yeah. not. It, it will is. happen again, I'm sure. I'm sure it will. Ali, great to see you. Thanks very much for joining us. We've got to run, I'm afraid. Uh, see you soon. Coming up later on in the uh, next hour, we're going to talk to Lewis McLeod, uh, an impressionist who worked closely with Steve Wright, did a few of the voices for his show. Uh, we'll get his appreciation uh, of the man himself as well. Uh, here we are. Uh, this is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We are shooting straight and true. And at the top of the next hour, it's Donald Trump. He's back in court. Plus, the latest from the lazy civil service. Only two days a week. Coming up next.
Good evening and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk, we're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and of course we're on your smart speaker. Coming up in this hour, Donald Trump faces a criminal trial for allegedly falsifying hush money records in the Stormy Daniels case. Plus, London's overground railway lines are given a £6 million woke rebrand by him, Sadiq Khan. And the Sussexes hit the slopes with camera crew in tow, of course, in their first public appearance since the royal rebrand backlash. So, here we are. It's official. We are in a recession again. But, of course, it depends who you ask, doesn't it? Jeremy Hunt makes it sound like there's no big deal. Nothing to see here. I mean, it wouldn't look great if the Chancellor of the Exchequer admitted he was powerless to stop the rot. Instead, he says it's more important to have low inflation than high growth at the moment. Rachel Reeves, meanwhile, his opposite number in Labour, simply says the government might say they've got a plan, but it isn't working. Let's face it. No matter what the politicians say, of course, if you've been listening to the Independent Republic, you will know exactly why we have a problem with the economy. Not enough people are working, and not enough people are working hard enough. And here's the proof. Bosses are struggling to get their employees to come into the office more than 60% of the time. That actually means three days a week for full-time workers. So is it any wonder that economic growth has stalled? It'll come as no surprise to any of you that a new survey which asked people how many days they would like to come to work for found that civil servants were the most likely to want to work from home. Indeed, despite a memo from the Cabinet Office in November, which urged civil servants to, that they needed to provide strong, visible leadership to their staff, civil servants only want to come in 2.1 days a week. Bless them. That means they're not even doing the Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday routine uh, known as twat days working. Ministers are already on the record as saying they've been trying to pressure Whitehall staff to come back into the office because the dreaded working from home is reducing productivity and causing longer waiting times for services. Of course, ever since I've been banging on about this, there have been the usual complaints from the working from home brigade who always say how much more productive they are when they don't have to travel into work. Well, I'm afraid it's not like that in the public sector. The probate office has reduced its phone helpline hours to just 9am to 1 in an effort to clear chronic year-long backlogs. And at the tax offices of the HMRC, call waiting times have increased by 62% after flexi-time working was introduced in 2021. It's so bloody obvious it shouldn't have to be said out loud. But with so many people in this country economically inactive, that means not ever working at all, and so many only doing half a week at a time, it's no wonder we are in the mire. GDP per person is down. That means individual contributions to the economy are down. And I wonder why. We've got more people than ever in this country doing less and less. Yes, that's another recipe for disaster. Congratulations, everyone. Now, later on in the show, we'll be bringing you a first look at tomorrow's front pages. But before anyone else, we've got an exclusive look at the Sun newspaper. And I've got quite a story for you tonight uh, because the headline says rotten to the core and this is a special leaked report secretly leaked and it's all about sexual harassment at train drivers union aslef they're describing it as a predatory boys club the headline says aslef members raped and groped porn and sex chimes and harassment were the order of the day one in four women say that they have suffered at the hands of these people and one particularly angry mp is calling for a police investigation Absolutely extraordinary stuff. A quarter of female union members reported experienced sexual harassment at work. 
branch meetings or union socials. Members were asked to report uh, on personal experiences rather than provide details only of assaults which were investigated by the police. So dozens of them reported being groped or sexually touched. Others told of unwelcome sexual jokes or gestures and colleagues displaying porn. Well, I mean, no wonder. They're on strike so much of the time, they've got nothing better to do. We'll give you more on that story uh, as we get the panel back in a little bit later on. And we'll bring you more uh, from all of the papers that are going to be out there tomorrow as well. But let's talk about things in the United States of America because the judge has thrown out Donald Trump's bid to dismiss the Stormy Daniels hush money case and has set a trial date for March the 25th in a blockbuster hearing in a New York court. The 77-year-old will be the first former president to stand in a criminal trial when he faces the jury accused of paying the adult film star $130,000 to keep quiet about their alleged affair before the 2016 election. This is just a way of hurting me in the election because I'm leading by a lot. We're leading by numbers that nobody's ever seen before. And they figured this is their way of cheating this time. Last time they had a different way. This time they have something that's really down and dirty that no, frankly, no country does other than a third world country, a banana republic. A third world country, a banana republic, Donald Trump describing the judicial scenario in New York, where, of course, uh, the Southern District uh, Manhattan US attorney uh, is a staunch enemy of Donald Trump and swore uh, to get him. Let's cross now over to New York, where Fox News contributor Joe Concha joins us. Joe, very good evening. Welcome back to the Independent Republic. Pleasure to be back, Mike. How are you? Very well indeed. I mean, I've got to say, I agree with Donald Trump here. I mean, this is another one of these ridiculous cases that's been brought against him. Um, Stormy Daniels was here being interviewed by Piers Morgan many, many months ago. Uh, and she gave some rather graphic details of, uh, of what she will say, I dare say, in this particular court case. But what do you make of it? I think it's ridiculous, Michael. I mean, and that's not just me. I'm not a legal analyst, but there are many legal analysts here in the United States respected, even those who are not a fan of Donald Trump in any way, shape or form, who say that this case never should have gotten even to this point. I mean, we're talking about hush money payments that were made many years ago, allegedly, to a porn star, in essence, and now you're going to criminally try to charge a former president uh, in, in a Manhattan courtroom. It's the complete and total weaponization of the justice system. Donald Trump is right in terms of that this reveals or it, it seems that we're in a third world country at this point. And it seems also at this point that Joe Biden, if he is the nominee against Donald Trump, who most certainly will be the nominee, on things like inflation, voters think Trump is the better guy to handle that. They think he's the better guy to handle gas prices and energy and trade and the border, obviously, and immigration, which is a huge, huge issue here. So on all the major issues, Trump is leading. In all the swing states, Trump is leading. If the election were held right now, he would win in an electoral landslide. And it seems that the only way that he could be taken out is not at the ballot box, mm. not by voters, but by lawyers and judges in cases like this where anybody looks at it and says, wait, criminal behaviour over something like this? No, I don't think so. Well, that's the thing I think that puzzles a lot of people in this country, Joe, because we're sort of struggling to, to see this as some kind of criminal act because, of course, you can understand why there are civil cases, you can understand why even, um, you know, district attorneys might get a little hot under the collar because they don't like somebody's politics. But what is the actual charge here? I mean, what, what exactly do they think that he's, that he's done wrong and what crime has he committed? 
ironically, Michael, it is election interference. In other words, by keeping these payments silent, the American voters did not know in 2016 that Donald Trump had engaged, allegedly again, in this act. Right. And therefore, uh, he interfered with his own election, an election that he won in 2016. The irony, of course, is that this is actual election interference where you have the, the front runner in terms of the nomination and to win the presidency in court seemingly every other day right. uh, trying to at least put a face on these cases to say, look, look what they're trying to do to the 45th president of this country. Uh, and and the, another irony, by the way, Michael, is that every time he appears in court, his numbers seem to go up even more. So <laughs> so go figure. But there's another yeah. case going on down in Atlanta that's going very well for Donald Trump right now. Right. That, that and, I do know. And, and what about the significance of the March trial date? Because that's right in the middle of sort of primary season, isn't it? Sure. Uh, March 25th is just a day or two before several states here in the U.S. will hold their uh, primaries. Now, of course, Donald Trump, by that point, may be the only uh, candidate left because he faces Nikki Haley in yeah. South Carolina. That is her home state where she served as governor. And he's leading by, I guess, touchdowns probably isn't a good analogy to use with the British audience. So I'll just go with points. Uh, 30 points, 35 points there. And Nikki Haley probably will drop out after that race, because if you lose that big in your home state, then that's the end for you. So it won't have so much of an impact on the primary season. It could have an impact in the general election, because polls show now, Michael, that if Donald Trump is actually convicted of a crime, then enough people may not vote for him or stay home to sway the or swing the election over to Joe Biden in those key swing states where yeah. it comes down to a couple thousand votes. But of course, as we discussed the other day, um, it may well come down to the fact that Biden isn't actually standing, mightn't it? Because although the one thing that is in his favour at the moment is the economy, because he's one of the few um, leaders of a, of, a, of a world economy who can say actually that there's a bit of growth going on more than about 1%, which is what we're suffering from. Um, but That's he is he is becoming more and more the target of other Democrats. Even Hillary Clinton, I saw the other day, uh, threw in her two pennies worth to say that, you know, they're all a bit worried about his cognitive abilities. And they should be, right? I mean, in just one week, one, one week last week alone, Michael, he said he had a conversation with Francois Mitterrand, you yeah. know, the, the, the French president who didn't die like a couple of months ago or last year. Right. We're talking nearly 30 years ago. Yeah. Then he said that he had a conversation with Helmut Kohl, the German chancellor mm. who died many years ago. You have expected him to start talking about a Zoom call that he had with Charles de Gaulle. <laughs> right, because that, that's where things are going at right. this point. And then that Robert Herr special counsel report comes out, and what they revealed was that he couldn't remember when he was even vice president. That right. lasted eight years. That's that's not like, hey, pick a day a couple of years ago when you were doing this. It was literally two terms that he couldn't remember when he started or when he finished, couldn't remember when his son had died, not even close in terms of that year. And then an ABC News poll comes out, Michael. 86% of Americans believe that this president should not serve another term because he not, does not have the mental fitness to do so. Imagine that nearly nine right. in 10 people say, no, thanks, Joe Biden. You don't get a sequel. Uh, but the question is, then, does Donald Trump get convicted? And then what happens from there with all these third party candidates? Right. It's, it's nuts. Nuts. Maybe they should just give it to Taylor Swift, Joe, because uh, apparently one in 20 people uh, in the US believe that Taylor Swift is, in fact, um, part of some kind of conspiracy um, regarding Joe Biden. It's the most ridiculous conspiracy I've heard in, in, in a time where we have many conspiracies going on. So we're, we're supposed to believe that somehow uh, magic powers allowed the Kansas City Chiefs to win the Super Bowl and Travis Kelsey, the tight end for the Chiefs, started dating... 
Taylor Swift. So then they, after they win the Super Bowl, then endorse Joe Biden and bring uh, the presidency home to him. I mean, A, the Chiefs have won, you know, three Super Bowls in the past decade. So they don't need help from anybody in order to win these <laughs> championships. They're one of the great teams of all time. And to think that somehow Taylor Swift's involved with all this, it's just its just dumb. I mean, uh, these right. are adults that are coming to these conclusions, and oh, I'm I certainly not one of them. Indeed. And, and you know, also, she hasn't endorsed Biden, and if she's got any brains, I, right. I suggested she probably won't. Well, look, Michael Jordan, the great uh, NBA star uh, who played for the Chicago Bulls and won a bunch of championships in his own right, he once said that Republicans buy sneakers too. And what you don't want to do is alienate half of your audience potentially by right. saying you endorse a president who you may not be fully behind, by the way. Remember, a lot of young people in the United States think that Joe Biden is a war criminal because of his support for Israel. And most Taylor Swift fans, I would imagine, are already, you know, just teenagers, right? Like my daughter, she's 10 years old. She is not eligible to vote. So I don't know how many people, even if Taylor Swift did go ahead and endorse Joe Biden, how many people is that really going to sway in the end? They're going to say, you know, Food prices are still too high and yeah. gas prices are still too high and our border is wide open and terrorists are coming into this country and the world seems like it's on fire in terms of Biden's foreign policy. But because Taylor Swift, who has a great voice and puts on a great show with the Eras Tour, told me to vote for him, I guess I'll do that now. I think people are a little smarter than that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, uh, and in fact, I mean, talking of people coming to your shores, I mean, we have a problem with that as well. I mean, we've just now finally uh, been given... Um, information, shall we say, that some of the people who are coming here, certainly illegally, are now under investigation uh, by MI6 and, and the police because they may have links to extremism. And I'm going, oh, really? Well, you didn't think that that was the case before you got told that? And MI6 uh, over across the, the pond and, and then obviously the FBI here uh, finding that hundreds of people have been apprehended trying to cross into our border who are on the FBI terror watch list. And those are the ones that we've apprehended. There's been thousands upon thousands of gotaways that have come into this country. We don't know where they're coming from. Increasingly, we're seeing more and more activity from Middle Eastern countries coming to the United States and into our country illegally, and no one is doing anything to stop it. So uh, that's why it's gonna be a number one issue, I think, in this country, especially if, God forbid, a terror attack is carried out and yeah. we learn that a terror cell uh, carried this out by crossing it to our border and, and no one took the problem seriously yeah. when they should have. Exactly right. Joe Contra from Fox News, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. We'll be speaking to you, I'm indeed. sure, again uh, very soon. Next time, next time uh, we're on next week, no doubt. Um, now, uh, let's go still in that part of the world, but slightly further north. While the King and Princess of Wales focus on recovering from their respective health issues, Harry and Meghan continue to act as if nothing is wrong. The pair sported smiles almost as big as the 140,000 engagement ring Meghan was flashing for all to see as the Sussexes hit the slopes in Canada to promote the Invictus Games. It was the couple's first public appearance since the inflammatory rebrand of their website to Sussex.com. Joining me now is the Royal Editor, uh, the one and only Mr Robert Jobson. Robert, very good evening to you. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. I mean, a £140,000 engagement ring, you know, like we've all seen one of those before. Um, skiing on the <laughs> slopes in Canada to promote the Invictus Games, but I didn't see anybody from the Invictus Games there. What's going on? Well, they're doing this pre-long jump at the Invictus Games where they sort of basically jumping up money, to be honest, Mike, ready for the, the event and jumping up publicity. So the whole thing is really what they, they've done. They've done it before. I, I've got no problem with the Invictus Games. I actually think it's a great a great thing. I think it's good. It's great for the, the guys and girls to take part in it. It's just that um, this is one of the ways he has to do it. He has to drum up all the publicity, the pre-publicity, 
to sort of keep the sponsors rolling in. Yeah, but I mean, some people are saying it's a bit tone deaf, isn't it? I mean, literally, I know you wrote a big piece in The Sun last week talking about, you know, uh, Harry's meeting with his father, uh, King Charles. We now understand it to have been quickly, quickly sort of taken care of, perhaps more at his behest than it was at anybody else's. We also know that Camilla, the Queen, didn't uh, take part in it. Um, he rushes back to be in some Las Vegas prize-giving scenario... And now they've gone off up to uh, to Canada after rebranding their website. And it all seems a bit kind of, um, shall we say, commercialised when his dad is clearly not very well. <laughs> Look, everything that this couple do has to be commercialised because they basically, this is how they're going to make their money. They know that. And I think what's happened here is that with, with Harry, you know, he's made his traumatic... Uh, over anybody that criticised him was told, oh, you know, the poor lad is just trying to see his dad. Well, you know, within 48 hours, he's going bang in the commercial drama again. But I've also got, I'm, I do take a bit of an issue with the, this rebranding and the sort of yeah. emotional bit. It, it's just inevitable. From the moment they this, this deal when they signed off and they decided, um, and they decided to actually just go off and do their thing. They're always going to cash in and do what they're doing. Um, are you still there, Mike? Yeah, I am. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the problem. I mean, they were always going to cash in, but they also said that they were not going to cash in necessarily on things that they agreed not to cash in on. So they weren't supposed yeah, to cash I... in on the Sussex name. They weren't supposed to cash in uh, on the, the sort of the crest, the royal crest, and they weren't supposed to cash in on the Sussex name, were they? Well, they weren't supposed to do that, right? but the fact was they did the Sussex Royal, they took out the Royal. That's from the Queen. No, the reality is I don't think they really care what the Palace thing can do now. The fact is their titles weren't taken away from them. They, they never went through that process. Parliament would have had to get involved. But if you didn't take away the titles, and they are introduced as the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, Prince Harry, wherever they go, they're going to use it. And there's probably not an awful lot anybody can do about it. And that is that is the problem. The yeah. door has been left open by the palace. And the fact is, if they hadn't made that, if they'd gone and done something about it, I could see that why everyone could kick out a fuss. But you sort of can't take away their ability to use their name. Now, we're going to be told that the Lord Chamber is looking into it. But, you know, they're in America. They're, their titles are... Yeah, it's all governed by American law. I just don't think that there's an awful lot the fans can do about no. no, I think that's absolutely right. Robert, the, the signal's not great, so I'm going to let you go, but thanks very much indeed uh, for talking to us. It looks very much as though um, they're doing what they want. They're just doing exactly what they like, and you might say the royal family should have been a little bit more clever about how it was all handled. But, of course, the last queen, uh, the late Queen Elizabeth II, was too nice to probably put any kind of restrictions on them, and that's part of the problem as well. Because they're just going to say, if anybody tries to stop them doing what they're doing, oh, we're being victimised. They're picking on us again because of their racists. Yeah, they're all racists. It's just unbelievable. So they're going to happily use the Sussex name. They're going to happily tout themselves around as Prince Harry and Meghan, even though they don't want to be royals. And they're going to happily use a name which is not their name, which is connected to the fact that they were given it by the Queen uh, before she died, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. They still use it. They shouldn't use it. They shouldn't use the name Sussex. They shouldn't use uh, the crest, the royal crest that she was given either. But they're just going to do it because, as Robert says, they don't care. They don't give a monkeys, literally. Coming up, uh, we're getting hotter in the Independent Republican Mike Graham on Talk TV because up next, Britain is sinking and Nigella says no to Nutella. 
Don't bloody move. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now it's time for taking the mic. There's something rotten at the heart of the British way of life, I'm sorry to tell you. And I'm not talking about the way our towns and cities are being ruined by overzealous town planners and cycling maniacs. I'm not even talking about the methods our local and national governments are using to try and convince us to be greener every single day. No, I'm talking about litter. That terrible blight on our beautiful country which seems a peculiar pestilence almost everywhere you go in the United Kingdom. You could be wandering over the dales in North Yorkshire when you suddenly come across some random chocolate wrapper or an empty cup, cup of coffee. You could be meandering down a country lane only to find a ghastly collection of abandoned white goods which have been left there by some callous fly tippers. Or you could visit the spectacular beaches of the nation and discover that hordes of beer cans have just been left by whomever was drinking them before they went home. I've travelled to most parts of the world and I can say with quite a good degree of certainty that nowhere else in the civilised world is quite as filthy as this country. And it's our fault. I taught my children from an early age not to chuck litter either out of a car or anywhere else. And they've learned never to do that. But sadly, not everyone has. And now one seaside holiday destination has decided to do something about it. Bournemouth Beach has been like a magnet for people during the hotter days of summer. Thousands of people descend on the place every day. But what they leave behind is much more than an eyesore. Now local residents are slamming the visitors for trashing the town and the beach and they want to impose a tourist tax. Bournemouth, Christchurch and Poole are all putting in plans to charge every visitor £2 in the hopes of raising £2 million that they can then invest back into the facilities. And while I applaud them for trying to do something, these seaside towns and other holiday destinations need to give more bang for that particular buck. They're claiming people leave rubbish everywhere, but that's probably because there's nowhere else to put it. Be more imaginative with how rubbish is collected and maybe things will improve. Make more space for bins so that people have no excuse to litter. And how about making it easier to park instead of allowing streets to become clogged up because of a lack of space and imagination? Already this week, we've had the locals in Falmouth moaning about Londoners coming in and buying their houses. Well, maybe the time has come to be a bit less territorial and more friendly. Can't do any harm. Now, we were just talking about the BBC and they've been in a bit of hot water after the tragic demise of radio legend Steve Wright. His friends say Steve was unable to recover from the heartbreak of losing his Radio 2 show in a scheduling shake-up. After all, it's no secret that the man lived and breathed radio. And I'm now joined by someone who knew him well and worked with him, also graced Steve's beloved radio show on a regular basis. He is our good friend, actor and impersonator, Mr Lewis McLeod. Lewis, a very good evening to you. Hey, mate. Very good to hear from you. Now, you were as shocked, I guess, as everybody when you heard about what happened to Steve Wright uh, earlier this week. But you were on his show on a regular basis, weren't you? Yes, I was. Uh, yeah, and um, I first met him in 2013 when we were on promoting Dead Ringers. And right. uh, he said, but we've met before, haven't we? And I think I would have remembered that because he is the guy. You know, he's uh, the show that we grew up with. Um, you know, for 40 years I was listening to his show, so right. I, I was absolutely honoured to work with him to get on his show, doing sound bites, and we did these little songs, which ultimately we got a song commissioned. We got uh, two and a half minutes on his afternoon show with uh, Duncan Wisby and I, 
uh, wrote and Duncan created this amazing arrangement as Jeremy Vine. We did Jeremy Vine singing a song called Take Care. So it's quite an amazing thing. And, you know, and, and producers and music were going, Lewis, you've got, you've got on the afternoon music schedule on Steve Wright. I mean, it was a big deal. Right. So I, I became his friend and was gutted when I heard that he passed. I was just... I couldn't believe it because he, he just emailed me before Christmas and we were planning to meet up, right. planning to do, you know, more projects together. He had a cracking slate of stuff happening. So, yeah, it was a real shock, man. Absolutely. And did you not manage to get the Jeremy Vine impersonation that you do onto Jeremy Vine's show as well? <laughs> yeah, we did. We did it as an April Fool. We, um, I started his show and Jeremy was in his studio and I was, uh, they muted him, so he began his program. And on the program today, uh, and we just had all these crazy ideas. Scientists have created the striped banana. Um, how long are you willing to wait for a short back and sides post-COVID and all this kind of stuff? So meanwhile, he started his show with what was actually on the news, and we pre-recorded this thing, this like minute and a half, two-minute introduction, and it was, uh, yeah. And they, they, luckily, they filmed his reaction to it. And once he realised it was a spoof, he was just howling. You know, yeah, he's looking quite well. He's been brilliant, Jeremy. And oh, what about I, an Elvis? Did you not do an Elvis impersonation as well? No, that was Mitch Ben. He, uh, he's a genius. This guy, um, Mitch, is fantastic. Great comedy writer, great performer. Uh, the, 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 for me, it was like you're joining an alumni of great performers. It was yeah. a real honour because... Um, you know, I, I'm part of the team on Dead Ringers, and John and I, John Culshaw and I would be on regularly. He would do his brilliant Alan Bennett. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, he's, he's been a, he was a big fan of mimicry. You know, he enjoyed Phil Cornwell doing Mick Jagger. I mean, it was a, a, a riotous. Right. But, so I was re really thrilled to be a part of it. And, uh, and we did a stack of characters. We were always coming up with new ideas. You know, yeah. we had Brick Talk doing, we had Brick Talk doing William Shakespeare. Yeah. You know what I mean, Mike? You know, reading these beautiful sonnets as bricked up, and cabbies loved it. You know, I'd get into taxis. I wouldn't say I was particularly well known as a face, but they would. Cabbies recognised. They recognised your voice. Yeah. Well, you I remember. Recognize? I remember being in a taxi yeah, yeah. with you when you did that um, that whole brick top thing um, on a speech which was made by was it was it not a, um, a speech from The Godfather or something like that. <laughs> no, it was probably the speech from Snatch. Do you know what Nemesis is? Oh, that one, yes. Yeah. Right, that's, that's some it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can't do it on here, unfortunately. Although, if we were on well, later, you, you probably could. Speech. But it was, but it was brilliant. <laughs> give us, give us another, just give us another little bit of that before you go. Oh well, you know, it's uh, a righteous infliction of a retribution manifested by an appropriate <laughs> agent, followed by a very long beat. <laughs> yeah, Rick, Alan Ford, the actor, amazing. Yeah, big fan of his too. Yeah, it's just it's the outpouring of grief and love for Steve Wright has been ah, it's incredible, and 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 we're just really shocked. And yeah. I think actually Jeremy Vine has has led the charge. Jeremy has been really wonderful. Uh, he kind of goes and start in his career to Steve, and um, it, the, the irony being they're all moving out of Wogan House, mm. and the studio's all been ripped out. There's this a horrible kind of irony about all of this and uh, but you know Steve spoke to me regularly and he was really happy there's been a lot of this thing and he died of a broken heart it, yeah. he would have stayed on air and he'd be more than happy I'm certain of that but yeah. he was he was talking to me and saying you know I've got a great um, slate of work coming up I've mm. got my podcast telly he's got the freedom of movement and and you know I think that 
they were bringing him in to do more, and he probably would have ended up doing more than he had, you know, in his afternoon show. Yeah. If you know? he could, yeah. Well, he loved radio. He would have done it until literally uh, the last day of his life, and, and he practically did. So um, he might be uh, sitting up there listening to all this and saying, what are you going on about, pair of idiots? But there we are. Uh, yeah. Listen, Lewis, great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. We'll see you soon, you hopefully too, down here in person, if we can do it. Yes, Lewis McLeod there, um, fantastic impersonator. He really is. Last time we had him on uh, was for Burns Night when he was uh, came in as Donald Trump. Uh, now, uh, moving on, Labour's dubbed it Rishi's recession as the Prime Minister's pledge to grow the economy took a hit with today's figures. Experts say, though, the numbers aren't as bad for the Prime Minister or the public as they may seem. And let's see what the panel makes of the UK uh, in recession. I mean, who knows? They might have all been cutting back and haven't bought anything for ages. Um, but Tom's here, Candice is here, Andrew as well. Tom, I mean, the recession is not really a recession, is it? It's one of these economic recessions where the people say, well, there's been two quarters where there's been no growth or negative growth, so technically it's a recession. And Labour loves it. No, they do. I mean, any excuse to bash the Tories, that's to be expected. Yeah. But as you say, I mean, really, this is just a, it's a sign of just the stagnation that we've seen, yeah. seen, which is bad enough. The fact that we had the terrible COVID years economically, and the fact that even though he made growth one of his main pledges, mm. we've just been trundling along at right. the very bottom of the pile. And that's something which, um, surely that's good enough to go out rather than scaring everyone witless by talking about recession. Yeah. Yes, technically speaking, but even people at the FT, who are hardly friends of the Conservative mm. Party these days, have said over the course of the past 24 hours, not and I don't. I mean, I didn't, I didn't see obviously. the market suddenly falling off a cliff or anything like that. I mean, it wasn't particularly unexpected because there isn't any growth. There's nothing happening. Nobody's going to work. I mean, I said earlier um, this ridiculous study that, w that we found today, where civil servants only want to go into work two days a week. Don't even want to do three. Um, and there's loads. There's five million people not making any contribution to society at all. So there's more people here uh, who are less well off because there's too many of them not making any money. No, absolutely. And that's one thing that you have heard Jeremy Hunt start to talk about that problem of yeah. the amount of people who have been... It's a tragedy, really. They've just been put out to pasture because yeah. it was easier to do so rather than to actually try and find a way to get them back into work. Right. Um, there's a hell of a lot of potential that needs to be unlocked there. It's not the only thing, mm. but it would certainly help. And it would also give a lot of meaning to those people's lives. This whole city's now is like a quarter of the workforce, yeah. which is out. It's right. A, well, I mean, on a Monday or a Friday, you can issues. sort of, you know, fire a cannon down, you know, many of the main streets in the city yeah. and there's nobody there. Mm. Which is remarkable. It is, it is extraordinary, isn't it? Well, it does make the, the front page of the Financial Times, mm. tomorrow's front, they talk about the economy, shrank 0.3% in the last quarter. It's a blow to the people yeah. for his promise of growth because we always remember the five promises that yeah, he yeah. made. Um, inflation was always going to be an easy one. Well, you might it? remember them. I've forgotten them all, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, you know, but, because... but it's all about stop the boats, we always remember that yeah. one. And, and I think when he promised it's all going that so half, well, wasn't it? I, I, he promised a half inflation when it was 11, over 11%, yeah. and clearly that's going to happen. Um, let's head room for tax cuts is what they're saying mm. which is going to be reality uh, but I think you're right you have to pedal the narrative and it depends on what stage you do it yeah. it will get better I think, I think are we not in a position Candice where people just see it from their own perspective you know if you've got less money than you had last year it's not good if you're managing to stay about the same you're okay yeah but that's I mean maybe it's just the phase of life I'm in right now where people have mortgage and childcare costs I just feel like people are at the edge of their budgets. Mm. They are straining their yeah. budgets. I mean, financial resilience is low. Right. I mean, you hear people who have good jobs and they're responsible and they say, I have to think very carefully about what I spend my money yeah. on now. I mean, I know people who have moved out of London because their mortgage kind of quadrupled yes. yeah. and they just couldn't afford it. And they were like, we've got to sell the house and got to, got to move out. And these were not, you know, people who were particularly badly off. No. But they were just, like, literally priced out of the market. Because everything's gone up at once. So, mm. you know, say you've got those 
extra mortgage costs, maybe you could handle it. But your energy bill's gone up, your food bill's gone off, your petrol bill's gone up, your taxes have gone up. Yeah. Your, everything, your local Your blood council. pressure's gone up. I yeah. mean, yeah. all these sort of That's things. right. Yeah. And you can't see a doctor to get, you, to get your blood pressure down. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were talking to Angela Knight a bit earlier about right. British gas and their pro massive mm. profits today. And I always struggle to understand anyone who works in the energy sector, they always kind of somehow cover their backs by saying, oh, well, you know, it's not really what it looks like. Well, yeah. sorry, they made 10 times as yeah. much money in profit. Yeah. Meanwhile, we're all paying through the nose uh, for very, very expensive energy, and we're just getting stooped yeah. every, yeah, no, every single turn. And, it's, and it's, it's an obscene amount of money. It's just an unfortunate fact that given the way that the market is structured and given the way that these things work, they profit enormously yeah. off of yeah. the misery of everyone But they else. always profit. It's not like, you know, they, oh, they made a loss last year, so they're just making up for it. Mm -hmm. No, they didn't make as much of a profit, but they still made a profit. And it's always the juxtaposition of the misery, whether it's heating or eating, yeah. and next to the horrendous profit or the great profits. Well, we spoke, I mean, we used to speak to, to, to people, pensioners, who would ring into the show and tell us that, you know, oh, I can't really put the heating on yeah. Yeah. today because I'm not sure that I can afford to do it. Okay. They, were, they were being given some money by, by yeah. the government. But, you know, the fact that we're subsidising these companies and they're making 700 million quid mm -hmm. can't be right, can it? Yes. It doesn't make any sense. Sorry. No, what were you going to mm -hmm. say? No, I think it's one of those things where clearly this needs to be, this balance needs to be redressed. I get there's a certain element within the Conservative Party who scream blue murder as long as you talk about thinking, is there a way in which we can actually take these profits and make less of the burden on right. ordinary people? But surely when it's this extreme, mm. and also it's not as if people are being provided with a fantastic service these days. No. Or also the fact that even before we had the sky-high prices of the experience, they have been ticking up anyway as a consequence of government right. policy as yes. well because of the sort of energy policy. Well, because all the things that you see on, on, the, on the bill, which are added in by the government, yes. you have to pay the green tax and you have to pay the standing charge and this and that and the other, and you're kind of going, well, you know, where is all this money coming from? And what about us? You know, all we want is cheap and abundant yeah. energy. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, you have all this obstructionism in politics, you know, that, for instance, this irrational fear of nuclear. And, you know, all these plants mm. that could have been operational by now yeah. were blocked years ago. Yeah, by and Nick Clegg. We, yeah, we could have a much better energy <laughs> I supply. I never liked that guy. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> I mean, there was never anything good about it. But this is the thing. You know, we just... And, 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 you know, this windfall tax idea where you sort of say, oh, well, we'll make sure we get them to give us back the tax. Well, that doesn't help us because we don't see any of it. You know, all we get is loaned money by the government, which is actually our money. I, I, and um, it's always deja vu. You're, and then, they, right. then we give it to them, they give it back to the government. Yeah. We're the ones that end up with nothing. Yeah. I think the thing is, it's also, I can understand the um, allure of it in a situation where they're making these obscene profits. I think we can take that, we've got public coffers to fill, I get that. The problem is, the longer term problem is there, which is we haven't invested in energy security, no. plentiful energy, nuclear, oh, it's 10 years, that's right. far too long to wait. Right. Ridiculous well, short-term thinking. Yeah. That's what definitely needs to be addressed mm. more than the palliatives. As you well, one of the reasons the American markets are doing better and the American economy is actually growing is because they've got cheaper energy costs. Yeah. That's Absolutely. exactly the point I was going yeah. to make. And so, and, and so much of our inflation is because we're very, very vulnerable to spikes yeah. because mm -hmm. we don't have our own energy supply. Yeah. So, I mean, so much of what we do actually isn't driven by consumer demand. It's problems with the supply. Yeah. And you always need to look at the whole picture, as you say. So look at the knock-on effect. And so America's a really good example of that mm. stuff. But we always have the story, as I say, it's always the juxtaposition of these massive, massive profits and the misery that's caused. Yeah. But nobody comes up with a solution. No, yeah. nobody does because they don't want to. Let's talk about far more important matters. Nigella Lawson.
person in this week <laughs> um, of Pancake Tuesday says that putting Nutella on a pancake is vulgar. Uh, outrageous. Well, I mean, she should know. I mean, there's quite a lot of vulgarity around Nigella Lawson. Uh, I mean, I never, I've never ceased to amaze me how she manages to turn a cooking show into kind of a sex festival. <laughs> you know, it's quite remarkable. She's gl glorious like that. But you I, I mean, whatever I, I, you like I do like her. Uh, yeah, I'm not a big fan of Nutella. For me, it's like children's food, isn't it? I, I, yeah. I was having lunch with James Whale today, and he oh, says yeah. he, he has his Nutella and he eats it with a spoon straight out of the jar. Really? Which I think it's fantastic. Huh. So do all that sort of stuff. Um, but I put Marmite on croissant and bits and pieces. I do. Well, or, I suppose or, if you like Marmite, you and, put it on that's anything. That's fine. <laughs> and, and you absolutely have whatever you like. There's no way that Nigella should tell us what we, what, what we should eat and yeah, what we shouldn't I do. was told we were having ice cream with pancakes. That's what, that's that's what, you want. what was requested, and yeah. that's what we Hot cross buns and Marmite. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> she's, absolutely, she's a purist. It's only lemon and sugar, isn't it? Lemon and sugar. Which is very much the French thing, but actually, if you go to Paris and yes. you have those creperies in the street, yeah, they'll do you a Nutella one yeah. because they'll, they'll, you know they'll do you a savoury one, they'll do you and they'll do you a savoury one. one. Maple syrup was well. There's a very the famous Canadian there's one. a very mm -hmm. famous crepe um, van. I think it's probably still outside that, the King William the Fourth pub right. in Scotland uh, in Hampstead, rather, yeah. um, which I used to go to when I was a teenager. It's how long it's been there. Yeah. Uh, it's very good. And my mother, being Scottish, used to do. Um, Stewed apples. With oh, that's nice. That was actually nice. really nice. No, no, absolutely. That was a staple of ours. And this, I will say this to people, you know, if you have, because we didn't have that much money. If you haven't got any money, you can stew apples. Yeah. And it's a brilliant, brilliant, um, you know, dessert. And oranges and things like that you have with a, with a crepe, don't you? Yeah, you can do that. Yeah, have yeah, whatever like you that. like. Have okay. whatever you like with your food. Nobody should tell you what to eat. <laughs> yes. yes, absolutely right. Um, let's have a look at um, what's been going on down in Sydney, because apparently Pink has had a few mm. problems. Her entourage, yeah. and uh, she refused entry because they presumably didn't recognise her? Well, what yeah, was always a bit embarrassing. Pink. Everybody I mean, knows pink. Well, yeah. It's very 2010, though. I mean, I haven't heard from her in a long time. No. I didn't know she was still going, actually. Well, she was... walked in for 15 people. Yeah. She went in with the do-you-know-who-I-am routine. Yeah. They didn't. Right. So they said, you don't have ID. I'm afraid you have to go. Was, yeah. it, was it an age policy? Because I do wonder, this is one thing you run into in this country all the time. Yeah. People have challenge 25, challenge 30, right. 35, 40, 50. 60. I don't know where it's going to stop. Right. But it does become this ridiculous situation. I remember once queuing to get into a pub in Camden because it was that busy. Yeah. And there was a there was a Geordie cop in front of me, must have been there, sort of like late 50s. Yeah. They got asked for ID to be put through the scanner. They had yeah. not. They didn't have it. Because they're in the late 50s. Right. They got turned away. <laughs> so it's There's nothing worse than being turned away when you've been waiting ages. <laughs> well, no, especially she, she booked so the Manly Skiff Sailing Club, as we all know it well, and 15 people she booked when they mm. wouldn't let her go in. It's bizarre, isn't it? Mm, but she doesn't like the best part that. of this story is the name of the place she was trying to get into, which is the Manly Skiff Sailing Club. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, only in Australia. We love it. It's, it's not great. badly enough. I Very think. good. <laughs> I haven't been there, as it, as it turns out, but she turned up with 15 people in an entourage. That's yeah. a proper rock and roll. That's, awesome. awesome. That's even more than I have, uh, has to be said. <laughs> now, Plank of the Week returns tomorrow night from 7pm. Here's a flavour of what you can expect. You wouldn't be surprised to know that we've got um, a sneak peek at um, Humza Useless's holiday. And here he is. Oh. Um, have a look from Qatar. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I love this clip. You can never tire of seeing this. Never tire of it. There he goes. <laughs> <laughs> I think we need to play that again. Chuck, I think let's have another look because uh, it wasn't very noisy, that one. Here he goes. This is obviously not actually in Qatar. This is uh, in the Scottish Parliament. You can recognise it by that very expensive wood panelling. Oh and he just can't catch a break, the poor guy. Can't.
I mean, um, it's one of my favourite clips. We use it every time Hamza Yusuf is ever nominated. Yeah. And to be fair, he's nominated for a good reason this this week. I mean, notwithstanding the uselessness of his of his rule in Scotland, he's decided to go on holiday to Qatar. Yes. In the middle of this, you know, war between Israel and Palestine and the Gaza Strip, he's gone to the place where the top knobs of Hamas actually live, uh, where they're negotiating supposedly with possibly the heads of the uh, government in Qatar and possibly the Americans and possibly the Israelis in a place which, you know, is so anti-everything that he talks about, you know, anti-women, anti-gay, you know, completely and utterly, you know, pro-Islamic um, uh, fundamentalism. And the opulence and wealth. I mean, yeah. one thing about those Hamas chiefs who have been holed up there for so many years is these guys have got multi-billion no, dollar got property got yeah, in that yeah. country. It's absolutely obscene. It, it is, is glorious, however, could I? I would recommend that people do go and visit it. because it, it's Listen, a... if you've been paid off by Qatar, you won't be back. So, you, know, <laughs> <laughs> you can keep if, your mouth shut only, about that. Uh, people can make their own judgments. Thank you very much. Right, you you're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Next up, uh, we look at the woke new names for London transport lines and all the top lines in tomorrow's newspapers. Do not go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now it's time for this. The World of Woke. Now, what do you do if your organisation is in a financial black hole and in debt to the tune of billions of pounds? Well, if you're Sadiq Khan, the self-appointed saviour of Britain's capital city, you spend even more money, another £6 million, to be precise. But don't worry, it's not going to be spent on making anything better. Transport for London, the public sector money drain responsible for running buses, tubes, cycle lanes and ULES fines, is hanging by a thread. Because despite all the strikes, despite all the public money that's been wasted and despite the overcrowding, Khan thinks the thing that really needs sorting out is, wait for it, providing woke names for the railway lines. Until today, the Overground, a network of train lines that link all the stations in outer London with the centre outside of the tube network, was called just that, the Overground. But no more. Sadiq has decided to rename all the lines and give them all different colours. So now, instead of travelling on the Overground, you will be on the Liberty Line, the Lioness Line, the Mild May Line, Suffragette Line, the Weaver Line... And, of course, the Windrush line. So what, you might say, and you might be right, except for the fact that he's charging you and me, the taxpayer, the six million quid for the privilege. Most of that cost will be to change all the maps and will be spent on extra printing fees. And where does he get the front for this? And where has he got the money from? Social media was awash with suggestions of lines that he could have provided instead of the woke ones on his list. I mean, where is the Palest line, where free Palestine gets chanted on every train, or the Nightmare line, which obviously speaks for itself, given what's about to happen there, could have been a strike line, which would basically never be operational. And then there's the pickpocket special, the stab central and the sexual assault line. Oh, no, that's, of course, the entire network. Susan Hall, the former leader of the Conservative Party uh, at the London Assembly, who's now running to unseat him at the election, was equally scathing. She said, a 1,000 people have been killed under his mayoralty and yet Sadiq Khan is only interested in this virtue-signalling nonsense. The only surprise is he hasn't named one of them the Sadiq line. The world of woke. I mean, the suggestions were absolutely coming thick and fast today on all of the different versions of, you know, 
I mean, we lost about is... half a day to that, despite office, to be honest. <sighs> Coming up with like the county line, yes, you know, <laughs> the county line, Shamima line, the picket lines over here. The picket, picket line is very good. The Asinine <laughs> line. We had, we had free palace line. <laughs> yeah. well. I know, I uh, you could have the lines of cocaine. I mean, there's a lot of going on. It is absolutely mad, isn't it? I mean, absolutely. Also, the fact that the overground was actually, I thought, a very useful way to get around, and it was very easy to read the map because you could see. Now it's going to be ridiculously kind of complicated as you go from one part of the suffragette line through the Liberty Line, you know, to get to whatever it is you're going. The Mayonnaise Line. Is that what they were saying? Six million. Yeah, but mostly because they're going to have to spend it on all the printing. Because don't forget, even though we live in a digital age, every station has to have. A map. Yeah, it's, it's, so well, they're going to change right. all of it. They should do digital screens, which you can then update as appropriate. And you can show where the closures are. They should. Somebody probably just smashed them though, because there's a vandal line as well. The they could have done <laughs> and the graffiti the line. line. Well, I, guess oh. the door I just, I love this because if you think about it, originally it was supposed to be it's just the place names, or it's got something to do with the yeah. family. But now it's open season, so next time if it ever happens, we get another Tory mayor. They'll just, it'll just be tipped. Well, there will be a Charles yeah. line, won't there? Because there's a Elizabeth line, line. We had Thatcher line. There you go. Yeah. I know. It'll just be line in the sand. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Anyway, how about rotten to the core? Let's go to the papers. Oh, the Sun investigates today. This is a shocking story, and you'll see that it's related to trains. So we yes. moved uh, smoothly on there with the transitional <laughs> yeah. uh, into this is the Aslef Drivers Union. Uh, which is being described as a predatory boys' club. The Sun have got their hands on quite an explosive report yeah. where women basically are being treated as sex objects, shockingly, by trade unionists. It's awful. You make one it, in four women, one in four, just, they say. It just gets so much more depressing. I know. Train travel get any more grim and depressing. Know. It's the absolute worst now. It's like my expectations are so low mm. through the floor. I mean, I will say with some of this stuff, when people start saying institutional... Sexism, yeah. misogyny, immediately I get a bit sceptical. Yeah. Because, you know, an allegation can go so far these days. Now. Yes. One in four really... women is quite a lot, though. That, that is awful. And they say 60% didn't complain because they thought nothing would be done. I'm not quite sure how you know that they didn't complain mm. unless you ask them, did you, did you not well, complain? Well, I think they did. They basically did a sort of study of members of right. this union who did not make... It was outside of any complaint they made to the police. So, okay. So anything that was less serious than, than something reported to the cops, I guess. So it is your everyday kind of, you know, showing porn to people and yeah. a bit of groping. But it is awful. And, and sort of thing that you didn't think happened anymore. No. Yeah. And, but I think the just to pick up on Candice's point, the difficult is when you have these big studies is that often you'll find that you've got the really serious allegations of harassment and sexual assault and... Even, you know, showing pornography to people. And then yeah. you see, it's even mentioned in the story, case of people being belittled in front of co-workers yeah. or told off. So I think that's the difficulty, is whenever you have an investigation in something like this, which you should, of course, have an investigation mm. to, there's this desire to not just say, here's a discrete problem, let's deal with it. It's yeah. the worst ever. You can right. play all kinds of things. And I think that's always a bit... I mean, part of the problem, as I said earlier, is that they're always on strike. So they've got nothing much to do, really. They don't sit around abusing each other right. uh, and, and belittling each other. Maybe they should get back to work. Yeah, I think so. Swines. Um, <laughs> now, there's a very interesting story on the front page of the Metro I'd like to... Uh, point you towards male fertility breakthrough baby boom uh, and apparently they've discovered that there's something called immotile sperm yes. which doesn't move I, I, and, and therefore is completely useless um, an ultrasound can apparently make it swim well, what I love was they say increased movement by up to 266%. I'm not quite sure if, it's, if it doesn't move at all, then it's yeah. more than 266%. Yeah, it's not moving. 66% to zero, um, yeah. But, it, it, it's, it, but no, it's a great story, isn't it? Because they're sort of turning around the medical advancements, seismic mm. medical advances they're doing. Well, they're, they are. Really good. If, I mean, if in fact it leads to a higher level of uh, births, then yes. that's, that's all fine and so. dandy because it is very low at the moment. However, yeah. I just wonder how 
it's going to work because they're talking about frequencies of 400 or 40 megahertz, yes. higher than the level used in presentation. But when do you zap it though? Because presumably, if it doesn't move, mm. um, you have to zap it before it moves. So yes. you have to zap it before intercourse. I mean, do you have to give it a go? Well, before I, I, you, you have a kind of like speaker set up yeah. I mean, how is it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and you had the science boffin in the room with you waiting. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> or, is it, or do you just make it move and then wait for it to move by itself? I, don't I wonder. Know. I think it depends on the treatment. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. It's, 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 very... yeah. well, you've, got, you've got IVF, so that, that's where they um, remove an egg and yeah. they the sperm. And then you've got things like IUI, so it's, that's where they shoot sperm inside. So maybe okay. this that, that could be used to right. make that more successful. I'm not sure. Yes. I'm just puzzled as to the, the way it would it's actually really work. Weird. After 20 seconds, they say 59% of those who didn't move at all would suddenly move. Yeah, so yeah but presumably they don't move forever, though. They just yeah. move for a small amount of time, but then yeah, they stop yes. again. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, obviously, that, as you can tell, I'm not a scientist. How immobile is a motile? That's exactly. What, yeah. I mean, is it a permanent move? Is yeah. it just a temporary one? Yeah. Like, There's a lot of questions. Are they going I mean, in the wrong direction for the story? All right. But there are these phrases like lazy sperm and things yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, lazy husbands. I mean, it's one of those things. Um, what about uh, Paul McCartney? Apparently oh, very happy. Story. Um, I suppose for the headline alone, you have to read it out. Uh, Inside the Sun, they've done a big spread. It was a long and winding road while Macca <laughs> gently wept for his guitar, but Obla D, Obla Joy, it's got back to where it once belonged. Now he's got to hide his love away. I would love that. Not bad. Every single, Not bad. Every single yeah. 1961, they said it was originally stolen, apparently, yeah. and it's been reunited. It was found in a loft, apparently, Amazing. this wonderful uh, bass guitar. They reckon it was worth 10 million, or is worth 10 million now. I'm not quite sure how they do that. But maybe was do you think he's be... bought it back from whoever found it in their loft? Well, they that could be... Uh, were recompensed for their company. You would like to think so. Yeah. They how did they get hold of it? Because I you think always that's hear the these stories. It's always in someone's loft, you know, where they find some first folio that got mm -hmm. stolen right. from some university somewhere. And yeah. suddenly it, like, turns up. And you think, hmm, yeah. how did that make its way into your loft? There are some strange things in lofts, though. I mean, I found a letter in my loft. And, uh -huh. Well, actually, one of my kids did, which was from, like, somebody that had formerly lived there. And so it had just been sort of left in a box. There was this box of stuff. So people do leave things was in lofts. Was it left from Paul McCartney? And unfortunately not. And I don't think it was worth anything like £10 million. But <laughs> looking forward to burning it at the next, uh, you know, the next cremation of uh, some, some stuff from leaves from the garden. But, yeah, so... so Good luck looking, always looking aloft. It's always, always worth checking. Always I love that. It's good. Paintings, guitars, yeah. anything like that. Hunt feeling the squeeze on cuts. And then that last story we talked about very briefly, extremist migrants are now considered to be a threat. I've been saying this for years. You have. You know, I don't know why it takes them so long to work this stuff out. But anyway, listen, thank you very much indeed. We've got I'm through as many stories as we can. Uh, we will see you again, I'm sure, very, very soon. That's all from me uh, tonight, though. Uh, you've been watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Thank you to my guests, Candice, Andrew and Tom, of course. I'll see you tomorrow night at 7pm uh, with Plank of the Week. And you can also see me and Andrew Eborn, actually, on uh, The World According to Mike Graham at 11.30 tomorrow night. It's all only on Talk TV. Don't go away. See you later.